Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day there, everybody. Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, my guest on the podcast this week is a guy who did join us last year, but there's so many more things to talk to him about. Hall of Famer Mark Scaife is our guest on the episode this week, and it's a good time too because he's got a new book out this week. Mark Scaife, The Complete Illustrated Autobiography, is a 280-page look back at his amazing career. He's let some of his friends tell some stories that I'm surprised that he let slip into this book. You can order a copy now from bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. It's a great Christmas present for anyone who's a Scaifey fan, a Holden fan, a motorsport fan, or loves some good yarns. It is a 280-page ripper. You will enjoy it. Now, my chat with Scaifey in the podcast was recently on the phone, and we talked about a bunch of things that we didn't cover last time. When we had Mark last time, we were talking a lot about his time with the Holden Racing Team because it was the 50th anniversary of Factory Holden Competition at Bathurst. This time, we've covered a lot of stuff that's sort of in the book, sort of not. Uh, Stuff about school and how he was at school, uh, playing rugby league, racing at Le Mans, the Bathurst 12-hour with Mazda, driving a Formula One car in a car park, and he's got a great Thomas Mezzera story as well, our guest from the last uh, podcast. Thank you, everyone, who's given us such great feedback through socials. The overwhelming support and interest and positivity from the Thomas episodes was unbelievably huge. So thank you to everybody for listening. I think it's one of those podcasts that probably reaches even beyond the motorsport bounds, as, as many of you who will heard it will will certainly attest to. So in the meantime, tell all your mates about our podcast if they don't already know about it. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're not au okay with podcasts, subscribe because it means you get a notification every time we load a new episode. Generally, it's Wednesdays at midday Eastern Daylight Savings Time. If you're not in this part of Australia, figure out your time clocks. You'll, you'll figure it out. But you'll get a notification. That's why I should subscribe. Leave a review. Give us the five stars. All that jazz. That'd be great. Anyway, here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Mark Scaife on the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken. Well, we've never had a repeat customer on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, but today we do. Mark Scaife, you are our first repeat guest. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing because there's a special reason for it this week. But before we get into that, uh, g'day and welcome back. Uh, hey, Nern. I'm repeat customer. I like the title. That's very good. Don't worry. There's no invoice. It's okay. It's okay. You can be the customer without being charged. Hey, we spoke last year on the pod. We sat in the office with you and we talked about uh, Factory Holden stuff because it was the 50th anniversary of Factory Holden involvement in uh, Bathurst with Holden and I can't remember what month it was, but I think you and I would have not dreamt at that time that come, what, five, six, seven months later, Holden would be all over and uh, the world would have changed. How things changed so quickly? Oh, look, it's, I think it just gobsmacked everybody. You know, February 17th of 2020 was a day that I, I just never saw coming. I mean, I, I expected the announcement to be that uh, Holden dealerships might have been converted into you know, to GM dealerships and there'd still be some sort of Holden presence under that scenario. But I uh, I never saw uh, a day. And honestly, I'm still a bit uh, a bit bewildered by it because, you know, it's a brand that's just been ingrained in Australian society and in our DNA. And the effect on it's just been profound. I mean, I've been to a couple of Holden dealers uh, through the time. Um, and I've had so many people come up to me that have been either loyal Holden customers, you know, families that have had, you know, lots of Holdens through the journey, um, or I've, I've had people come up um, and ask, you know, what am I going to do now? Who am I going to support? Um, which has been an interesting question based on how much, you know, red fanfare and merchandise is, is still very prevalent across all of our events and, and within our framework of supporters. Um, so there's a lot, yeah. There's a lot of um, weird stuff out there, and, and it's hard to explain. It's, and it's difficult for people to cope with, especially those people who have just been 
you know, diehard um, Holden petrol heads. 2020 has been a year that we'll all forget, or we'll want to forget, but we'll remember it for for various things. But uh, the reason why I wanted to catch up with you this week, mate, is obviously to talk about the new book. It's Mark Scaife, The Complete Illustrated Autobiography. It is out this week uh, from the team at Affirm Press. You can order it from us from our online bookshop, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Got it here in front of me, 280 pages, hardcover. Uh, Mate, I know you've done a few books before. You've done, I think this is the fourth one now, but this is a bit different to all the others. It's kind of You've actually let people roast you in your own book. How? Why did you do this? Because I've read some of the stories, and I'm surprised you let these through. <laughs> That's a very good point. I'm actually asking myself that too. <laughs> I, I actually did sort of say when we sent a note out to people about, you know, could you do a little piece in the book for me? Um, that you know, you don't have to be, you know, world champion. Nice doesn't need to be a, um, you know, a. a a rendition of, of nice things that you can put in in there, whatever you like. And I probably should have been a little bit, a, a, a little bit more stipulative, Noons, and sort of said, "Hey, how about sort of not rolling some of the stuff out?" Um, and then I did make a commitment to them that I wasn't going to change anything, and that was uh, and that was upheld. So that uh, that got through the filter. And uh, some of the stories are great. I mean, I love that one of. I mean, it's it's great. That's it, one of the things I'm really proud of and just in terms of my friendships and the, the people um, through uh, the journey have uh, have been such uh, great colleagues and, and, and so loyal, but they do tell some very funny stories. And that, that story of Crompo and I hosting whichever the name of the show was, he couldn't remember the name of the show when we come back from an ad break and that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I, and I let him go. I, I, just, I just let him live with it, which was... Uh, uh, even to this day, you know, we 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 bent over um, chuckling about it when we start to relive it, and uh, those sorts of stories are great. I do love seeing him when his hard drive wipes midway through something. You've seen it, I've seen it in a commentary box or live on a camera when he gets that moment of, uh oh, I don't know what I'm meant to say. Well, it doesn't happen often, we, but when we, it we, does, it's good. Well, that's right. I mean, he's you know, I, I, I still reckon he's the best uh, commentator of motorsport in the world, and um, and. You know, in that in that period, we were doing all these different shows, V8 Extra, Panel Beaters, Stick Shift on Triple M. Um, you know, we, we changed the name of the show that we were doing on the Friday night at Bathurst. And in that particular year, I think it was co- I think it was called either Friday Night Live or Pit Lane Live, whatever it was called. And and we we do normally put the name of the show and the event, etc., on the tripods below the cameras. But on that particular occasion, we didn't have time. We'd finished the day. We raced down after qualifying and got ourselves organised to host a, a, you know, the show. And when we come back to the ad break, he just had this absolutely magnet had gone across the hard drive, just had nothing. He, he just It was just dead silent. And he could not remember the name of the show. And he looked across at me and all he could see was my shoulders going up and down because I was laughing so hard. And, and at no point, because I just thought I've got to hang him out there, at no point did I say, hey, mate, it's Friday Night Live um, or whatever. And and it was it was excruciating for him because, you know, the other thing, Nunes, he hates making a mistake. Oh, yeah. And for him not to be able to remember the name of the show is just, you know, it's, it's A1 for a massive, massive moment in Trump's world. It was great. He was probably scarred by a Gary Rogers cross-dressing moment from the previous segment or something like that. I I think there's a few of those going on across the journey. One of the stories in the book that I love that Fred Gibson tells, and you might be able to uh, add a little bit to it or qualify it or put a little bit more to it, the time that you and your great mate Anthony Tratt, a lot of our listeners remember Tratty from Racing V8 Supercars and the Toll Team and Porsches, and you, you and he go way back. Tell me the story about the Nissan road cars near Nissan when you had a little whoopsie and you might have had a bit of a damaged car or two to deal with there. Oh, my God. Well, we, we were playing up and we we uh, were actually driving along. It, was, wasn't, it, it wasn't busy on the road that afternoon, but it was, it was on Dandenong Road and we were playing up and I'd given him a little bump from behind and he was in a Falcon Ute and I was in a, in a Polestar and... Uh, he returned the favour a couple of times. There was a couple of little bumps, and uh, and then the last time that he got me because you know it was front wheel drive, and quite a lot at the back. He's given me a hit and spun me around and backed it into a lucky no one was there into a into a bus stop. And uh, I had my briefcase and my golf clubs in the back, so I destroyed the golf clubs, destroyed the back of the car, and and 
And I had a briefcase in behind the driver's seat and it punched the briefcase straight out through the back window and ended up in new Dandenong Mazda's front yard. Um, that's how hard it <laughs> wasn't it, even it, a Nissan dealership. No, no, it wasn't even a Nissan dealership, exactly. So anyway, I mean, it was it was one of those ones that we can laugh about now, but he lost his license. I got a uh, sort of 12-month suspended thing, and it was pretty horrific when uh, when the because the, the police were actually sitting in the service road as having a McDonald's burger whilst we drove by bumping into each other. So <laughs> it probably didn't really roll out as we would have liked, and the first first people there were uh, were, were two coppers and. Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty ugly. Not 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 good. It was very kind of you not to have to make them go far for their next job. Uh. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Well, and it's not often it's not often news that you see a crash on the road. The two parties involved, and they get in the same car and drive off together. So I got in <laughs> in Treddy's uh, Falcon Newton. We drove off together. So that was uh, that was funny. We we do actually when we have a few beers, relive that now. Um, but that that's the only nice thing about it. It was a pretty ordinary day. One of those other young bucks from back in those days was a Mr. G. Seaton. And uh, you've told many a story about Glenn and his time. He's got a little chance at the moment. This is, this is funny how this has worked out. I've got to admit, and, and you can back me up on this, there was no correlation, there was no planning here that you've got a book out the same week or within the same two weeks that Glenn's first book comes out. There was no yeah. – we, we'd never spoken about this. We were off doing them independently. Uh, I got a little bit involved in the background of your book with some photos and some stats and bits, which was great to be involved. But then you were kind enough to write the foreword for Glenn's book, which comes out very, very soon in the next week or so. But I was really interested to read both to go, right, what's each said about the other and what clicks <laughs> all together here? And, and you've told the story numerous times about Cito spilling more of his beer on his shoes than he actually put in his mouth, which I would absolutely believe. But tell me a little bit too, he, he sort of said to me that there's been a few times where he might have actually his calming presence because, as we know, one of the things we love about you is you're all in. You are mega passionate. So there's probably been a few times maybe in your younger years where Glenn had to just be the calming influence on Mark and just maybe drag Mark away from a little situation or two that might have got a bit fisticuffy. Uh, can you remember any of those times when your friend Glenn may have got you out of the shit that you could have got into some pretty decent drama? Uh, yeah, well, even though Glenn's the cheapest drunk on the planet, you know, two oozos of a couple of beers just smash him and, he, and he's no good after that. But he still does have a, a, a fairly mature, worldly-sounding um, board nature. He's, he's one of those blokes that um, is still reasonably sensible even when he's on the juice and um, although he, he does, he's a bit uncoordinated and things tend to happen that that um, don't necessarily he, he, he falls over and he does mad stuff he falls asleep early and all those things but whilst he's going he is actually still quite sensible and yes it is true that he might have he might have rescued me from a couple of ordinary situations but 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 don't don't worry. Conversely, there's a few things that you know I've, I've helped him out with also. So it, it's actually I, I agree with you. On the surface of it, for us to have a couple of books come out at the same time is great, and we've been you know we've been great mates, best mates for a long, long time. And um, you know he's he is one of one of the world's great great guys. So um, it's great to celebrate with uh, with the book that you've done with him, and uh, and I'm looking forward to, to reading it because um, I'm sure. There's a lot of stuff in the background of Glenn's career that uh, a lot of people aren't aware of, and I'm sure people will enjoy uh, getting a little insight into into G. Seaton and the Seaton family because it's a it's a dynasty of car racing that uh, goes right back to 1965 when he dad won Bathurst. So that's uh, it's a it's a great story. It, it's a really easy decision. Just buy both books at once and save on postage. What a great deal! We're just great guys, great guys. Hey, one of the things I'm flicking here, page eleven in the new book. Which, by the way, buy it from us now. Bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. Get in time for Christmas. Uh, there is a school photo in here. I love this. We dug out one of Glenn's, and it's ace. Yours is sensational. Uh, where are you here? Seven. Oh no, this is kindergarten. Seventy two. Um, you're easy to spot because you look like a cheeky shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> what would your school report card have said back in the day that your mum and dad would get every term? Was it the same uh, every time? Needs to listen more, or what would they yeah, have said? Yeah, just disturbing influence. Um, uh, doesn't play well with others. Oh, nothing's Maybe. changed. No, 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 exactly. Uh, a fair bit of stuff that was probably, um, Jesse H actually said to me 
all the time. She says, "What happened to you as a child?" And that's probably uh, that's probably a pretty good way of putting it. <laughs> Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars. Unforgettable. There's a pile of great um, rare photos that a lot of people won't have seen. Obviously, the car racing stuff, there's some rare stuff there that's not been published before, but there's a lot of uh, family stuff of, of when you're growing up, you and your sister yep. Lisa and your, your mum and dad and um, the early Nissan years and karting. And uh, I, I see that the Wyong Rugby League Club under-15s have got a, uh, a team photo in here. And for a second, I thought you played for Australia. Those colours look like the kangaroos. But uh, did you used to get smashed in Because, you, look, you weren't a huge guy. Probably more suited to car racing than rugby, but... Did you get yeah. belted there, or did you keep your mouth shut, or did you actually lip off a little bit and figure that oh, I'm not big enough to play rugby? Uh, well, a bit, a little bit of both. I used to be a little bit chatty, uh, as you'd probably imagine. Um, and yeah, used to used to get uh, a few of the boys would, would square up as a consequence of that. And I, I was always playing five eight or inside centre, or actually, as I sort of went through, I, I played a bit of halfback and hooker at the end. So I wasn't very big, but. Um, Lucky I had some big blokes with me. You'll see there's a few big blokes in the back of that shot. They're in the back row. You're in the front row. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that always does help when you're in a team of of blokes that are all trying to build each other. So that's – and I really loved those days of, you know, playing footy and growing up on the Central Coast. I reckon one of the things that – and further to that story, I've been up on the coast a lot whilst I've been stuck in Sydney for four months and and, uh, I've been up there to see those guys. And those same blokes, so – um, you know, most of those guys that are in that photo would do a men's health walk um, at Nora Head or B- Budgie Boy Lakes Beach uh, on a Saturday morning, and we'd go and we'd go and do the big, big long walk, and then we'd go to Wong Rugby League Club and have a thousand beers and take all the goodness out of the walk. Um, <laughs> but uh, but a lot of those guys, you know, they're lifelong friends, and uh, and and doing that is you know is a really nice way of sort of keeping some balance and. And uh, and staying grounded and and I think growing up on the central coast is one of those things. Nerns, I, I I credit you know the community support and the sort of country feel of of Wyong and the central coast of those days as a very supportive community and and a lot of other sporting people that come into AFL or or NRL or cricket, for instance, have said similar things to me. Where you know growing up in a more regional uh, country base tends to to give you those sorts of values. You, you, you're less cityified, and and I think that there's a real benefit in in having those uh, those country values. Yeah, I get it. As a kid who grew up in Ballarat, not huge metro, but not country bumpkin, I completely can can agree with that. Uh, we mentioned a bit of biffo and rugby, but I have to fast forward here in the book, and there was a story that. I thought this is this will sound better with you telling it than it coming off the page, but as a young bloke playing basketball or cricket or whatever it was, I tried to get my dad not to be there because he got he's a little bit passionate about it. So if our team wasn't going well, he wasn't going well either. Tell me the story about the day when your young bloke Mitch was playing footy. I think he's probably about sixteen or so, and his mate gets off off to the bench, and the other kid from the other team squirts him with a drink bottle. And what did you tell him to do? Belt him. I told him to belt him, him, and he did. (laughs) And I was standing with the principal. Oh, it's even worse. Oh, it was better. It was better because it was actually funny. So the new principal was there a a year, a year and a half. Uh, We used to, because you pay so much money to, you know, private school, doesn't matter where you are, I used to, when I'd go to a function at the school, I'd park in the principal's spot on purpose because I just thought that I should deserve that. You've paid for it. Exactly. And, so we actually hit it off. He's actually a really good bloke, and I, and he and he come from Sydney, and he follows Manly. So Manly rugby league team is obviously that that's been my, my team since since I was a little bloke. So um, we had a you know a, a, a pretty cool friendship going, and Mitch was playing footy for their you know the, the good side at Peninsula, and, uh, and they were playing a really a really good uh, Victorian school side, and uh, it was a pretty 
volatile game. And you know when young blokes get to a stage at 15 or 16, 17, when they're, you know, they're, the whole thing is then it's much more physical and, and it's, you know, there's a lot, a lot more gamesmanship and, and intimidation and the whole thing going on. And uh, this young bloke, uh, Jack O'Connell, was coming off the, off the bench. And, or, or, he was coming off the field towards the bench and this, this other kid sprayed him with a water bottle. And I just, just yelled out to him, uh, belt him. And he turned around and he did, and then it started a fair fracker. And uh, the whole thing, you know, in the end, it, it sort of settled down, you know, 30 seconds or a minute later. And uh, the principal was standing next to me. He said, he just looked at me very calm. And he went, you caused that. <laughs> so, I, and I couldn't disagree, but I thought it was the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love these. So, I mean, we can um, uh, talk car, you know, a book a- – about a guy who has you know achieved so much in racing can be so full of racing, but I think it's those stories and the uh, the away from the track stuff that's that's good fun. One thing that caught my eye too, and I want I've never asked you about this, and I thought mm, good time to ask you about this. Nineteen eighty three uh, CIKH Pacific Championships in Perth. I've yep. got I've got the entry list here for the hundred cc intercontinental A junior category, which by the way was sponsored by Computers Everything Proprietary Limited. I'm not sure if they're still around or not. Um, number 16, Mark Scaife, New South Wales, sponsor, Wyong Tyres and Spares. Yep. Cart, what was the cart? Do you remember? Yeah, well, it was a DAP, but I had, I had a couple, yeah. Yep. So I had a DAP and, the, and we had a Perilla engine. It was yep. a yep. SSHK um, Perilla rotary valve engine was the gun engine of the day. And they actually offered, so the company that uh, was the distributor of those engines was called IAME, I-A-M-E. And they offered to the best Australian or the or the leading Australian. They offered a, a, a an Italian engine, which uh, which Dad and I thought that was a smart thing to do. So we'd put you know a good engine uh, on it, and um, and uh, it was actually it was fantastic. So I think the two guys that beat me was a guy called Giovanni Banano who went on to race Formula Three Thousand. He was number, he was number five that day, by the way, on the entry list. Was he? Okay, yeah. 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 And a guy called Pierre's Honeyset, mm-hmm. who I watched race uh, in England in the Formula Opal series. So he did continue to go on. Um, he was actually going very well. He, he raced against a lot of the superstars of the day, but um, I did. I don't think that he continued on driving. But both of those. Those were uh, they were superstar kids of the day. Well, he was car number one, Piers, or cart number one, I should say. But what caught my eye, and I, I don't know if this is the one and the same, I don't know if this all came through, but I wanted you to tell me, yay or nay, cart number four was a kid from Germany. His name was Mike Schumacher. Yeah, no, he, and that's right, but he didn't actually, he didn't lob. So he knew about so, this kid from Wyong and thought, stuff it, I'm not getting on the plane to take him on. I'm just going to stay over in Germany and I'm not going to take on Scaife because I've heard about him. He definitely he definitely was entered and we were looking forward to him racing because everyone had heard about how good he was. Uh, but but no, he didn't he didn't lob. So, um, so we were sort of disappointed about that. But I'm sure he would have given us a hiding moon, but that, that, that's pretty much, pretty fundamental, I think. Oh, I think he was scared. Yeah. I think he was scared. <laughs> hey, a little links. Of course, he he made his F1 debut with Jordan, and you know where yep. I'm going with this. So mm-hmm. you had the aim, and you were you did a bit of F3000, and you did your Formula Brabham and Formula Holden stuff here in Australia. But you did get, and a lot of people won't remember this, but you did get to drive a Formula One car, and it was a Jordan in 1992. Tell me about the. What was it in car park in Adelaide before the Grand Prix? Yeah. Tell me about like yeah. you had. I found some photos online. Your name was on the side of it and everything. Yeah, well, the Grand Prix office called me and uh, and they said, "Look, would you do this? It's just basically a promo for for the Grand Prix." And and you know, I said, "Yeah, no problem. That's great. It's a great opportunity." I mean, it was like driving a you know Arnott's biscuit with an outboard on it. Noons. It was certainly a, a wild device in a little shitty car park with no grip and you know cold tires and the whole thing. Anyway, uh, that was worth doing, and that was a nice association with the with the with the Jordan. But what, uh, an extra link to the Jordan story is that the car that I raced the the Spa, the the Formula Three Thousand style car, but it was actually a built for Formula Holden or Formula Brabham, was designed by Gary Anderson. So he was the designer of the car that uh, that Schumacher. First, uh, first arrived and did such a remarkable job. Remember that first drive at, uh, at Spa, where he just he just blew everybody away in terms of how fast he was. 
So that car was designed. It was a really simple car of the day, but but beautifully engineered. And uh, he was the same designer that did uh, did my open wheel car also. So that was one of the actual cars that they were going to race in Adelaide that week, or it wasn't a show car or a spare or something like that. Was it no, a it was real, a dead, real dead, dead, dead race car? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Could you okay? Let's fast forward that. Could you imagine um, Max Verstappen wheeling his? You know, giving his Red Bull to Jamie Wink up in a car park in Melbourne for a promo beforehand? It just wouldn't happen. No, no, no. But things have changed so much. I mean, you think about the risk and what's going on. I mean, even, you know, even just the stuff that we've, we've done just recently at Bathurst, I, I got to drive the 1968 Monaro that, that Lowndes almost rode off on Saturday. <laughs> on Saturday. Um, uh, but that was, that was one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. But it, when I got to drive it, um, you know, there was great, there's great memories with, you know, Wild Motors, the, the dealers, uh, Max Leppenspiel was the owner of Wild Motors at the day and, and the Leppenspiel family operated that dealership, you know, 100 or 200 metres from my uh, grandfather and father's tyre service. So, we, you know, we knew the, the people really well. Bruce McPhee was the local famous racing driver. You know, you look at the car and, you know, winning in 1968 in, in an old Monaro. And when I got to have a little drive of it a couple of weeks ago up at Bathurst, I thought, oh my God, things have come a long way. You know, you just, you just, you just think about, you know, those people getting their road car effectively, running it in, driving it up to Bathurst, keeping the miles off the car through the course of the weekend, and then even under that crazy circumstance, you know, Brisbane did the whole race bar one lap. It's the best. So, story. You know, you, you just think, you just think how how far things have come, and and the way that um, you know our our mad society these days is so risk averse that uh, we would we wouldn't be doing some of the crazy stuff that we used to do. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and you might recognise their logo. But did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The two billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each pedal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now, despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and opened in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each pedal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timkin in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. I'm just looking through the book. Another thing that triggered me, uh, the Nissan sports car that you got to have a crack in. How close were you? And I know you got to Le Mans later on, and we'll talk about that in a sec, but how close were you to getting a crack in that Nissan sports car from a race point of view versus just having a test? Yeah, pretty close. Um, Howard Marsden was running the Nissan's uh, motorsport program of the day, um, and the two gentlemen, uh, Mr. Hioki and Mr. Kakamoto, uh, were the two heavies from Nismo who were running the motorsport program worldwide. Uh, so, you know, we knew them well from what we were doing in Australia, and, and obviously Howard had a great relationship with Fred Gibson, given Fred was the factory Ford driver when Howard was running those factory Falcon uh, in the early 70s. So all of that sort of lined up pretty well. Um, and the test went really well. I, I was only a tenth slower than, than, than Blundell, and that was a, you know, um, he was you know, he was sort of the superstar of the day. He and um, the, the group from England were, were essentially running the English Nissan Motorsport Program, um, and, and they were... Uh, effectively part of a three-way um, effort that one was coming out of Japan from Nismo and the other was coming out of what was the um, American program that Jeff Rabin was driving. So there were sort of three sports car programs all lining up at the same time. And then it just, it, it, look, it just didn't eventuate. We were, we were sort of close and it was one of those things that 
you, know, you probably actually had to move over there, Nunes. You know, you, you needed to commit to it and be in Europe. You know, we spoke about it quite a lot, and Fred, Fred and Ike sort of contemplated it. But, but it was also at a time when things were going pretty well in Australia, and the GDR was, you know, on board, and we were we were so busy that um, it just it just didn't line up properly. And as it turned out, they they actually ended up shelving that sports car uh, sports car program. Um, not long after that, so uh, it just—it's the timing. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it did. Seven years later, so fast forward down the track, you finally do get to Le Mans because things had changed in your V8 program. The Gibson thing was struggling for money, and you were missing a couple of rounds here and there. So the, I guess, the diary was a little bit more free, and then you end up in a a Lister storm, which a lot of our listers might not remember or know what the hell one of those things was, but it was a pretty good bit of kit. But tell me about the – you've told me about this before, and I'd love for you to, to share it with our listeners. And you must pinch yourself at the time that you did this and thinking back now a bit the same. You're out there on the track at Le Mans in one of the world's greatest sports car races, the 24 hours, world famous, and there's a guy you're dicing with. And you know where I'm going here, don't you? <laughs> His name was do. Mario Andretti. Whoa, yeah, that is great. that is cool to tell the grandkids for a long, long time to come. And if they don't know who Mario Andretti was, they can Google the hell out of him because that, my friend, is a bloody cool story. Well, there, there are two really funny parts to it. The first part was that when I got the call from Lawrence Pierce to come and to, he was calling me to offer me a drive there. How did that I come about? Was, why did he Why did he ring you? What was the link? Well, I actually don't know. Someone in Europe had obviously recommended, you know, that I wasn't that I was available or whatever. And I, I and I thought for sure that when he called me, it was John Clellan playing a trick. <laughs> so it was in the middle of the night. <clears throat> this English voice, you know, uh, Mark, you know, uh, and and I hung up on him. I said, I, I said, fuck off, Clellan, and I dropped the phone. And and. The phone goes back again. And he said, don't hang up, don't hang up. It's not John Cleland. <laughs> <laughs> it was Lawrence Pierce saying, would you like to come and drive and list of storms? Which obviously then I was, I woke up and I was very attentive and I, I spoke properly and I, I handled it very professionally from then on, but I, I certainly didn't start out very professionally with it. And then, and then as time went by, um, he uh, and I think it might have been Julian Bailey actually who sort of tipped me in there because I was I was driving with Julian Bailey and a young bloke called uh, Thomas Erdos, a Brazilian guy, and uh, and we, and I didn't test at all. We just basically went. So I'd never driven the car, nor had, had I driven it uh, at Le Mans. Um, but it was a really it was a it was a really good car to drive. Um, you know, the thing was doing three hundred and forty five kilometres an hour down down the Mulsanne Strait, and yeah. It, to your story, um, I had a great battle for about four, and you say four or five laps. The stints were only 13 laps because the laps so long. Each stint was only 13 laps. So for about half the stint for five or six laps, I'd exchange spots um, with Mario Andretti where I'd pass him and then he'd repass me. And, and it was, a, and it was I'll always remember how fair he was, how much road he would give you, it wasn't blocking, you know, if you could get down the inside of him, fight down the inside, and if he could round you back up again, that was that was great. So we, we probably exchanged positions oh, maybe half a dozen times across those laps. And, um, yeah, one of my fondest memories, it was, it was a great, it was a great uh, thing to have done. It's cool. It is so cool. And to think that 10 years earlier, you were driving an Nissan Gazelle. Things had changed just a little bit, just a smidgen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hey, wasn't that Gazelle, I think Freddie told me one day that, the gazelle that you you did your your well your first proper Bathurst you'd been up there the year before but didn't get to start when Peter Williamson had his big shunt but the car that you won the under two liter championship with that kind of got you rolling as a, a touring car driver was that supposed to have actually been crushed because it was a pilot car and should never have actually been a race car? Yeah, I think that was. But Fred was especially good. I mean, one of the things you know you, you've got to try to establish, you know, Fred level of influence over Australian motorsport in those days and, and the connections that he had and the way that he ran the business. I mean, he, he was certainly the Roland Dane of, of that era. You know, he, he, he ran the best ship. Um, you know, the cars and the team was meticulous in terms of its presentation and its preparation, etc. And um, what he always did was if he ever got a car from 
the car company, which he learnt in Ford days, and he, he put it to good effect in Nissan days, was that if he ever got a car from head office, he never gave it back. So that was that was always his go. And, and in that particular era, a lot of the cars come in as test cars or, or um, what they call mules. So the cars would come in to be to be tested for Australian conditions. And a lot of them were then, they were never allowed to be registered and they were supposed to be uh, crushed. But uh, Fred, <laughs> Fred changed the course of a few of those <laughs> and they, they got a second life. And uh, no, one, no one really ever knew. But anyway, that, was, that became a race car. It was, as, you, as you correctly point out, it was a, it was a cracking little car. And, um, and the great thing about that car in those days was, it, it, you know, it, it taught me a lot. It, it, it wasn't incredibly powerful, but it was really agile and, and uh, just in terms of learning the craft, it was uh, it was a great a great car to learn in and, and the team were really committed to it. You know, we had um, Trevor Jones, who was one of Fred's real lieutenants. He was he was one of the best automotive people I've ever been around. Um, so Trevor Jones was sort of the lead guy on it, a guy called Wynn Ellery who drove the truck and was a fabricator and really, you know, Great automotive person, also. Um, they, they, uh, we went as a little tribe of people to, uh, to around Australia with that Australian Touring Car Championship two liter series that they ran, and um, you know it was it, it couldn't have been better. Noons, it was it was a great way to get started. And it's still around. That car still races in historic Group A Touring Car racing to this day. So. Not bad for a car that's supposed to not be around anymore. It's still going strong, still going strong. Hey, another thing I want to quickly ask you about too, um, our good mates at the National Motor Racing Museum up at Mount Panorama who were were closed during the race this year, which is a real shame because it's obviously their biggest uh, part of the year. A little while ago, they had one of the Mazda RX-7 uh, BP cars, the 12-hour cars there on display as part of a bit of a a 12-hour exhibition. How was it that you got tied up into that Mazda program? Because you, you, I think you took pole at the 12-hour there one year and you, you led with Gary Walden for a long time before it blew up. But how, how did you get tied up in that? Because I think a lot of people will forget that you, you were a Mazda man there for a little while. Well, yeah, it was, it was a little controversial because it was actually the first time that Holden had won the Tarenko Championship since 1980. So 1994 mm. that I <clears throat> did that with with Freddie and all the heavies from Holden were wrapped and it sort of really got us into the Holden fold in terms of, you know, the hierarchy of Holden loving um, the performances and, and, you know, Rob McInery in particular uh, was just, you know, he was just a great, a great man and, you know, John Stevenson and John Waddell and those guys were, were uh, very supportive of Fred and I in, in that era. And then uh, Alan Horsley called me from Mazda who I'd, my dad knew very well because he used to run Oran Park in Sydney and, and uh, Gary Walden was also you know one of dad's best mates and one of my really really close close friends so between Gary and, and Alan Horsley they, they coaxed me into going and joining Gary and driving driving the car and, and the, the second part of that was that Barry Jones who was a famous master racer but also you know, a car preparation uh, guru from Sydney he used to help me with the Ford Laser originally. Um, so uh, the, the hookup was Alan Horsley was the boss. The, the cars were being prepared by Barry Jones and and their lead driver was, was Gary Walden. So uh, all paths basically led to, to me joining Gary. And uh, although it, it, it wasn't really frowned on by Holden, Holden didn't love it. But I said to Fred, you know, they're, they're going to pay me reasonable money and I'd like to go and have a drive with Gary. So uh, that, that's what I did. I actually really enjoyed it. It was fun because Popeye was in the other car, actually. So there was, you know, it was, it was a nice sort of atmosphere and and the way that um, that we, you know, we all got on and and um, yeah, probably a bit unlucky not to have won that that year that we were on pole and, and led for most of the day. It was it was another it was it was another foray into turbocharged cars, and I was pretty used to turbo, turbocharged cars stopping noon. So I, it did it didn't really surprise me, but that, that was one of those ones that. Uh, would have been good to win that with Gary because he was, I mean, Gary Walden was a very, very underrated driver. He was a really good racing driver and um, and especially good in those those serious production style cars. You know, he, he flowed the cars really well. He, he you know, he he, um, he didn't overdrive them and he was, you know, he and, well, in, in that era, remember, there was 
Brad Jones and Peter Fitzgerald that were sort of the gurus of, of production car racing in those days, and uh, and Gary was you know, very competitive. It was probably a little bit of a step along from the Cordia Turbo. Did, didn't you ever steer one of those like Crompton, you crazy buggers? I did. That was a mm, terrible thing. That was, could have been one of the worst cars I've ever drove. That, that, that could have. As Thomas Mazira would say, and we had him on the podcast last week, shit box, total shit box. <laughs> he did refer to a few cars as that, by the way. Uh, oh, he was a funny guy, wasn't he? I mean, he still I'll is. always remember. I'll always remember leading in nineteen ninety three noons at Winton, and John Bauer was trying to get by me, and uh, he ended up giving me a, a hit at the corner coming onto the back straight, the last of, of the tits, uh, as we call them. And um, as he spun me, one of the things that you always do if you're being spun is you drag as much lock on as you can as you're being spun so that you know that the front of the car is going to collect the person who's given you a hit. So as I was being rotated, I dragged as much lock on it. I got Bowie as he went by. And Alan Jones and Thomas Mazzera were the two cars next line in line of stern. And I, get, I, I saw Jonesy taking evasive action uh, to try to get away from my car spinning, and he was following the back of the car, which is the rule that you know, when the cars spin, you, you follow the back of the car. And Thomas, in typical Thomas fashion, everyone else was putting their foot on the brake to slow down, and Thomas was the only one that was hard in the throttle pedal. And he could see he had an opportunity to make some spots up. So crazy Thomas decides to put his foot on the throttle, full throttle. He come, he, he got my wheel and Alan Jones's, and was basically the whole car was about head height when it come firing by me. And... It was the whole car was in the air. It, it rode up on the wheel, hard in the throttle. All you could hear is the engine buzzing, and Thomas smashed as it landed. It broke the windscreen, and, and I think it actually really hurt that car. I don't know what the, the extent of the damage was, but everyone else was backing off, and Thomas was in full flight. Mate, mate, when you've hitchhiked your way through Eastern Europe to try to get out of communist Czechoslovakia, that's nothing. <laughs> That's nothing, You're probably mate. right. If you put it in perspective, it's probably it's probably a bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, oh, it was it was a great chat. If, if anyone hasn't heard our last episode, uh, go back through the uh, the podcast list. It's it's a cracker. It's a it's a really good one. A couple more before we go, mate. Um, I remember when you started full time television. So you finished HRT in 08, You did some enduros for a few more years, but you went into the Channel Seven. Um, commentary lineup in 09 with with Neil and the team and Barretts and Matty White and. Larko was, I think, not quite on the scene there, but just about arriving. You'd done tally over the years. You'd done guest commentary on races you weren't driving in or you, you know, whether your team wasn't competing or you were out of the, the race and your car was damaged and you jump in there and have a chat. What did, you, what did you find that you needed to learn when you took that on as your, your primary gig that you didn't know beforehand? It's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know, but when you started doing it as your regular thing, what did you find that you went... I just uh, I need to work on that, or I need to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, there, there were lots of things, Nunes, because I think it's it's like anything in life. If once you've decided to do that, and you you want to be competent, and you want to do a good job of it, you know, you think about it a lot, and you research a lot, and you and you dedicate you know a lot more brain space to actually being able to achieve the desired outcome, and you, you're looking to improve all the time. You know, still are today. And one of the things that I really felt um, that was that was difficult to tell the story was that in most of my racing life, I probably thought all the time that there might have been four or five people that you needed to beat each weekend, and and you and you sort of followed their progress. So whether it was a Glenn Beaton or it was a Jim Richards or it was a Marcus Ambrose or a Craig Lowndes, whoever it may be through the eras, that you dedicated a lot of your time understanding how your car performed and how you were going versus the competition, which which was relatively small because you, you didn't consider the, the whole field most of the time. But when I transferred into the commentary box, I felt really exposed in that I... I actually needed to dedicate as much brain space to someone who was running 24th as I did someone who was running second or third. And and that and that took a, a, a lot of work. And I mean, and, and, you know, 
to give credit where credit's due. I, you know, I've obviously used your resources a lot, your your stats and your background and your your knowledge, intimate knowledge of, of what's gone on with so many of the drivers. And I also have used, you know, was Ross Holder and then and then Oscar Fioranotto for a lot of the technical stuff because Neil and I try to prepare ourselves as if we were a race team. We try to have as much knowledge leading into the events as possible and, and then being able to dedicate enough of your of your thinking across the whole field. And, and I, I felt incredibly stretched and, and I, I found that part of it much more demanding than I than I foresaw. I, I, I didn't really understand the breadth of, of the services that we need to provide, you know, and, and if you're a fan, you know, if you're a fan of Jack Smith, for instance, at Bathurst, you needed to know stuff about Jack's journey and understand why he was running 11th and 12th or 12th or 13th when when the two cars went in the sandpit. You know, you, you actually have to track the car. Um, and I found that probably in terms of the workload, I found that a lot higher in, in or from a personal exertion perspective, a lot higher than I first thought. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I was interested to throw it at you because I, I wasn't too sure what the answer would be, but it, it makes total sense. Yeah, you're trying to beat two or three or four guys when you're racing, but uh, uh, the guy that's 15th and whatever is not too much of a concern. You're worrying about the guy who's second, third, fourth. So, yeah, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, mate, thank you for your time. We're ne- nearly wrapped up. I quickly wanted to ask you, and, and the, the guys here in the office actually asked me to ask you this too. Is Mark Scaife, you're getting worried here where this is going, is he done with driving? Would he do another 12-hour? Would he have a run in a, in a historic car somewhere along the line? Are, are you actually... Retired race driver, semi-retired. What do we, what do we label you? Yeah, well, I, I, I put semi on there only if I'm interested. I, I've done a few things just mucking around, and you know, I, I accidentally run into Neil Crompton in a Toyota 86 at, uh, at Sydney Motorsport Park this year just for a bit of fun, um, uh, which scared him, which was the desired effect. Um, <laughs> he keeps on saying to me, "Come out to you know." City Motorsport Park or, or Wakefield Park and have a have a drive. Um, I've done a couple of things with, with Holden even in the last 12 months where I, I, I did a sort of a Commodore review thing at uh, at Lang Lang where I blazed around for, for a day. I, look, I still really enjoy it, Moons, and, I, and I, I think the day that you don't like driving race cars that we or, or driving cars, there's, there's something wrong. Um, most of the reason that I don't do it is, is if I'm going to do it, I, I want to do it well. And um, and I know that if I do it, like if you, if you think about when I did the, the 12 hour and the BMW M6, you know, I, I spent pretty much six months getting back to being, you know, seriously fit again. And, um, you know, I was back at my fighting weight and I, I, I wanted to, to do it and do a good job. So if, if I was going to do it, I, I'd want to be prepared. I just really haven't got time. Easy. All right, I'll park all that big multi-million dollar contract that I had sitting there ready waiting for you to go. Scaife doesn't want it. Okay, I'll offer it to someone else. Larko might take it. Um, yeah, Larko might. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Oh, jeez, anyway. Hey, mate. He's really good in a straight line. He's yeah, really good yeah, in a straight line. Corner's not so good. Corner's not so good. Another quick thing too, the book's obviously out this week. It is Mark Scaife, the complete illustrated autobiography of one of Australia's most successful touring car drivers ever. Uh, it's 280 pages. It's published by the team at Affirm Press. You can buy it from our online bookshop, which is uh, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au Great Christmas gift and if you want to go up spec a little bit there's something just quickly I want to mention you've released a replica range of the 2010, your last Bathurst win with, with Lounsey in the Vodafone car a limited run of helmet replicas that are in a, a, a case box they're all individually numbered, they're, they're signed um, by you that's pretty cool, we've got those on our website as well that's something a little bit different I, I don't think, has there been a SCAFE replica Helmet range before? I don't think there has been, has there? No, no, no we've never done it. And uh, the guys come to me to say it's 10 years, and hasn't that gone fast? 10 years mm. since Lowndes and I uh, were lucky enough to win Bathurst. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically the reason for it, and uh, and they've come up great. So, um, again, uh, I think there's only 200, so uh, uh, it's, a, it's a nice uh, tribute to what was a really, uh, what was a really you know, great uh, one-two for Triple Eight and the way that uh, Lowndes and I were able to finish off uh, together. It's great. Tell me where do you keep the real helmet? I won't tell anyone. (laughs) 
yeah, I might have that tucked away. Yeah, I thought you might. I thought you might. It's going to be great to chat to you. The new book, Mark Scaife, The Complete Illustrated Autobiography, is out this week again. Thank you, mate, for a great year and all you've done being on the road with Fox Sports and the Supercars Championship, and we'll, we'll catch up with you when it all fires up at the start of 2021. Thanks, mate. Much appreciated. There you have it, Mark Scaife, on the V8 Sleuth podcast for the second time. And the funny thing is, I reckon we've got a whole pile of topics left to do rounds three, four, five, and 6 in the years to come. Don't forget his new book, Mark Scaife, The Complete Illustrated Autobiography, is out this week. You can order it from our website. The web address is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Perfect gift for Christmas. And if you're looking for something a bit bigger than a book, then... One of the replica helmets of Mark's 2010 Bathurst 1000 winning helmet, limited to just 200. We also have those available to order now from bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. They'll all be signed by Mark, come in a clear box. They'll be all individually numbered with the plaque. Uh, something really rare, only 200. And from what I've heard, the first few weeks of them being on sale, they've been really popular. So if you're a Scafey fan, that's one not to miss out on as well. Thanks again to everyone for your podcast feedback. Tell all your mates, subscribe to our podcast and you won't miss an episode. Join our mailing list too. Jump on the v8sleuth.com.au site and sign up to our newsletter. You'll get the latest of our news articles, some of the offers, some of the new products going. Of course, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are the places that you need to follow us as well. We're pretty busy. We're pretty active there as well. Anyway, one more podcast next week. Who do you reckon it is? Well, I'll tell you. Well, we've got plenty more podcasts to come for the year. But next week, we chat to another guy who's written a book. We might have had a little bit to do with this one. He's never been on our podcast before, but time is right. Hall of Famer, two-time Australian touring car champ and one of the nicest guys in the sport. Glenn Seaton is on the next episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast, so make sure you join us next week for the next episode, powered by Timken. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.